Cities produce more than 60% of global greenhouse gas emissions. Big cities get a lot of attention, but most household emissions in the U.S. actually come from communities outside urban cores, making them critical players in climate mitigation and climate justice. City Climate Corner explores how these small and mid-sized cities are tackling climate change and moving toward an equitable and sustainable future. I'm Abby Finnis. And I'm Larry Kraft. We're co-hosts for City Climate Corner. Hey, Larry. Hey, Abby. So here we are, first episode of our podcast. Here we are, City Climate Corner. That's right. So you reached out to me about eight months ago to do this podcast. What were you thinking? I had gotten into podcasts and was listening to stuff and about climate work and other things. And I looked around and didn't see anything on smaller cities. And as I'm now a city council member in a city of just under 50,000, I thought, wow, that's a, that's a gap. And there's enough unique things of challenges that a smaller city faces. And also, I think some really great stuff going on that I thought, is there an opportunity to do something here? And so I chatted with you about it and you agreed. Yeah. I mean, there certainly could be some more resources focused on smaller and mid-sized cities because, you know, as we point out in the intro, they're really critical to helping to meet state and national climate goals. And one of the things that always sort of surprises me is even just at a population level, you think, oh, the biggest cities must have the majority of the population in the country. But actually, if you get past that, um, the majority of the population is in the smaller cities and suburbs and things like that. So it's a critical area. What can listeners expect to hear over the course of the season? Well, we're going to examine individual cities and we're going to try to learn things from each city that we talk about and not just learn about things that other cities can do, like implementable ideas, but also, we also, especially in the first few episodes, we want to look at what's the youth story there as well, because young people have played such a big part in the climate movement. So we'll try to talk to young people and understand what they're doing there and how they've either directly or indirectly impacted climate action. Yeah. And as we will hear today and we focus a bit more on what this means for for the community benefits and for people, there is also a, a major focus on, well, what does this mean for equity and, and justice and how can uh, climate solutions also be justice solutions? And so we'll hear from some folks on on that and try to thread it through each of our episodes as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that you hear, you know, we're in a climate crisis, but we're also in a racial equity crisis. And part of the job now for local governments is dealing with both. And they're both equally urgent and very intertwined. And I add on top of it, COVID, and you've got three crises that were have to be dealt with simultaneously. Right. And so we can always, you know, face our challenges as though they are opportunities and, and come out stronger on the other side. Today, uh, we're going to kick off the season and talk to Dave Ribeiro of ACEEE, and he's going to lay the groundwork on why small and mid-sized cities are important climate actors. Excellent. Let's do it. Today, we are here with Dave Ribeiro, Director of Local Policy at the American Council for an Energy Efficient Economy, or ACEEE. Welcome, Dave. Hi there. Good to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about ACEEE and the work that you do there? Yeah, ACEEE is a nonprofit based in Washington, D.C. We've been around for 40 plus years now, 
And our goal is to advance energy efficiency across the U.S. Um, through a combination of policy, technical assistance, and uh, convenings. So um, we have a number of policy teams working on the, the state level, the federal level, and the local, uh, which is where I spend most of my time. And then we have a bunch of research programs as well that focus on really the nuts and bolts of energy efficiency. Um, so one of your kind of marquee projects, I think, has been the, the city scorecard that's been around for a few years, and there's a state one as well. Can you give us a little bit of background on that and how it came to be came to be and how it's used? Yeah, yeah, sure. Happy to do that. So the city scorecard uh, predates my time at ACEEE, so I can't talk about all of the ways it was originated. It was a, a former colleague of mine, um, Eric Macros, who's over at the World Resources Institute, who, who started the, the first edition. But um, it's a report we've been doing since 2013. Um, and the reason we started doing it, you know, we had heard these anecdotes and we knew cities were, were doing good things, but there wasn't a there wasn't a comprehensive way to look at their efforts and figure out one you know, are there are there leaders? If there are leaders, who are they? Um, and what cities need the most room for improvement? And secondly, is there a way to come up with a report that um, by scoring them in a certain way provides the beginnings of a roadmap so that cities can see their score and not only understand where they fall, but have an idea of what they could do to improve? And uh, yeah, we've been doing it every other year since 2013, though last year, um, well, now it's 2021, um, but in 2019, we started doing it annually. So we've had five published editions so far. Great. And can you you tell us a little bit more about the cities that are included in, in the, sco- the scorecard? Yeah, yeah. So we focus uh, on large cities. So we look at the 100 largest metro regions um, in the U.S., and then we focus generally on the largest city within that metro region. There are some cases where we'll take two cities Per metro region, so um, you know, in the Bay Area, we include San Francisco and, and Oakland, for example, and in New York, we include New York City and, and Newark, New Jersey. Um, but by and large, we focus on those central cities of the largest metro regions, so that we have um, you know uh, geographic diversity, and we're not just focusing on a bunch of large cities in California, Texas, and a few other places. Sure, that makes sense. Have you seen kind of consistency in the the top cities? Yes, yes. There's been a fair amount of consistency. You know, we have increased the number of cities in the report, which skews things a little bit. So when the first report came out in 2013, it had 34 cities. So it was a small sample size. In 2015, uh, we increased it to 50. And then um, the last edition was when it went up to 100 cities. Throughout that entire time, though, there's only been 13 or 14 cities who have been in the top 10. Um, so it's been a lot of the, the same leaders year after year and sort of switching places within the top 10. So it's a bit of a horse race there. But once you get past those top like 13, 14 cities, you know, there hasn't been a, a other cities that have broken the top 10. Interesting. I'm, I'm, I want to throw in a little bit of a plug, but you also have a category of like most improved city. Do you see a dark horse coming in that could break that top 10 in the coming years? Well, I hope so. <laughs> yeah, um, but some of them still have a ways to go. So last year, um, the two most improved cities, uh, and I'll say, yeah, that was the 2020 city scorecard. The two most improved cities were St. Louis and St. Paul. Um, so they, uh, you know, improved by something like 10 to 15 points each. I'd have to look. Um, but they're still in the mid twenties or so, or St. Paul, I think is a little higher. So they're between 15 and 25 in the rankings, put it that way. So if they continue to improve at the clip, they've been improving 
they got a shot to, to get up there, <laughs> but I just know historically it's very difficult to to get into the top ten, top twelve. So um, you know, hopefully that will happen, but it, it takes concerted effort over you know quite a few years. For sure, I just wanted to root for the hometown city. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so what what was the impetus for using the scorecard on smaller cities, and why did you want to do that to focus on smaller cities? Yeah, so when, whenever we put out the city scorecard, we've also put out a corresponding tool um, called the, the self-scoring tool. Um, obvious what its goal is. Um, but, you know, we didn't have the bandwidth to do, we only had the bandwidth to do a certain amount of cities. And we always wish we could do more, but, you know, there's only so many hours in the day. Um, so when we got to 100 cities, we knew that's where it was going to end. We just couldn't do a, a sustainable uh, report in more than 100 cities. But we wanted to have this tool available for any community who wanted to score itself. Because at the end of the day, the methodology of a city scorecard tries to focus on best practice policies that any community can pursue. Um, there are some things where, based on state legislation, maybe some cities can pursue, but by and large, of the 100 points in the report, um, it's focused on things that people can take steps on. Um, and so we had always had that tool available. We made it um, so that any city could download it and use it, but we hadn't used it in a, a concerted way to really get a feel for how are some smaller cities doing? You know, how does the methodology really apply and, and, and can the lessons learned from a, a scoring exercise of smaller cities be helpful to other smaller cities? It was always just a question that was out there. Um, so, you know, an opportunity came along um, through this work with the, the Sustainable States Network and some other state programs uh, where we could apply it to, to 30 smaller communities. And, um, you know, uh, we were happy to, to be able to do that and finally uh, answer that question of, of whether it's helpful for small cities. Can we get a short background on the rating scheme? I mean, what are what are the things that, that go into a rating? Both, and I, I, I saw also that the, the numbers for the larger cities um, are a little bit different than the smaller cities. The city scorecard has over 50 metrics that try to assess cities' energy efficiency, renewable energy efforts, as well as their efforts to embed equity in program development and program planning. Um, so the metrics, those 50 metrics trying to assess those three topics are categorized into five areas, um, local government operations, buildings policies, transportation policies, community initiatives, and utilities. So to walk just quickly through those categories, Within the local government operations section, we look at efforts that cities are taking to make their their own buildings, local government buildings, more efficient, their fleet, those sorts of things. Um, when it comes to the building policies areas, we're looking at what policies or programs are being run for private buildings. Um, are there good building codes in place, for example? Are there efforts to... Uh, are there programs that um, are trying to increase the efficiency of large buildings or requirements, that sort of thing? We have the section on transportation policy, which captures city efforts to reduce vehicle mile traveled within their city by, by goal setting or encouraging compact communities and a number of other metrics. Uh, Community-wide initiatives are sort of cross-cutting. So we look at cities' goals, but we also look at things like urban heat island mitigation, um, equity and uh, program planning. And then we have one small area focused on energy and water utilities where 
that we focus a lot on not what the city is doing, but what the energy utility or the water utility, if it's not owned by the, the city itself, are doing in terms of providing efficiency services to to the community. So I know that was uh, a long explanation, um, but there's uh, those 50 metrics that you know try to capture all of that information and the different categories, a city would get a numerical score. Um, every policy area has its own uh, denominator. Um, and then we just add up the points along those five categories to get your total score and we rank them. Um, so that, that's it in a nutshell. The one thing I'll say is for the Community Energy Challenge, which is the name of the initiative to score smaller cities, we removed the transportation scoring um, aspect of the, of the scorecard. And the reason we did that, that category more so than the others was a little more geared towards larger communities, having like a large focus on, say, transit systems. Um, and so we didn't know if it would apply as well to smaller cities. So we just decided to put that aside and focus on the, the four other policy areas I was talking about. Got it. When these results came back from this, the smaller cities, the community energy challenge, was there anything in the results that surprised you? Not really. And I'll say that because I didn't have, I didn't know what to expect. So it was hard to be surprised when I didn't really have an expectation of what I was going to get. Like I was saying before, this was our first time really looking at, at small city efforts. So um, we just frankly didn't know what was out there. Um, and so I'll say I, I was encouraged with, with what came back. Um, because one of the things we did find is it doesn't seem like population or city size, I should say, um, is linked to scores. Um, in our assessment, and I'll say the small cities that participated, they ranged from about 15,000 folks to a little over 100,000, maybe 110,000 in, in the largest of the cities. And um, it was not the case that the largest cities were clustered towards the top of the scores or the smaller towards the bottom one. It, it was a mix. Um, and the smallest city, 15 or 16,000 folks, uh, Red Wing, um, they came in the top 10. So it was encouraging to see that um, cities of, of all sizes can can take steps on climate action. Love it. I noticed my city, St. Louis Park, a little plug, came in up <laughs> there at number three. Yes. Another example. Another example of how cities all over can live. And there's a myth out there that Midwesterners are humble. We're definitely anything but. I think. <laughs> <laughs> good to have pride. You know, that's good. Um, did you notice any similarities or differences between these small cities that were scored and the larger cities scorecard that you do? There were, there were some. I mean, like like I was saying, you know, we didn't find that population really you know, factored into scoring results. So it wasn't as simple as, you know, looking at the smaller cities was really different than the performance of, of large cities in some way. Um, but in terms of similarities, we found that some of the same areas for improvement uh, for small cities are the same ones for, for large cities. Um, so one of the things that stood out from our scoring was that, um, you know, the cities in the community energy challenge, the smaller cities, have quite a ways to go in terms of efforts to increase uh, efficiency in existing buildings. Um, there weren't many policies or efforts that the 30 cities were undertaking. Um, the cities who did get points there tended to be getting points because of state policy, like a, a benchmarking requirement uh, statewide, something like that. There were a couple exceptions to that, but, but by and large, that was an area for improvement. And that's the same thing we see in large cities. Uh, large cities, you have some 
very innovative efforts in a handful of cities and you have uh, benchmarking policies that uh, have really proliferated um, and that's been encouraging but in terms of like cutting edge efforts to reduce energy use in, in buildings that that's still an area that across any size cities seems to be seems to be in need um, the other thing i'll say is that it it seems like the the smaller cities and this is i, I don't have data to, to back this part up so it, it's really just a thought um, the smaller cities that did well Sometimes it was that they had a flagship effort, a couple things that they really earned them a lot of points. Um, whereas having a broad portfolio of, of um, different programs, we didn't quite see as much. So in some of the larger cities and some of the leading cities, which I suspect have larger staffs um, and, you know, just the ability to run more programs, um, you see more varied programs. Um, and again, that might be because of you know just the amount of staff. That's that's the data point I don't have. Um, but that would be that would be one difference. Yeah, that's really interesting, and I think it's something that we see a lot. And and thinking about how we can provide additional capacity the, to those cities that don't have it and push them. What are some of those areas beyond um, benchmarking that cities can can have room to grow in? Yeah. Um, well, the first one, and this won't come as a surprise, uh, but, you know, efforts to in integrate equity into uh, programs, into clean energy programs. And again, this is something that cuts across large and, and small cities. Um, and this isn't unexpected because I feel um, equity has been something that maybe over the last five years has become more of a focus and it, it takes time for that to, um, you know, actually happen and for their for models to come out. But, you know, in terms of scoring across the cities, you know, we didn't find many efforts to um, integrate an equitable planning process uh, into climate action planning, for example. Um, so that's that's one area. Another one would be city utility partnerships. Um, so this was, and this is a tricky one, depending upon who your utility is, and I'll leave it there. Um, but we didn't see many city utility partnerships. Um, so that's a potential area for improvement, just to be able to, you know, make sure that cities are leveraging the energy efficiency programs that are out there, for example, or working together to increase uh, renewable energy, um, you know, those sorts of things. And then, um, the last one would just, this came, this was related to, to goal setting. So greenhouse gas emissions goals, cities, the smaller cities who had the goals didn't seem to have robust ways to track progress towards those goals. And I know that's just a challenge for smaller cities, frankly, um, but that's a, another area for improvement. Sure. Did you see any areas where smaller cities might have advantages over larger cities? Um. Not, not really. Um, you know, in terms of areas where they did well, um, there were like the local government operations section um, of the report seemed to be an area where, where cities did pretty well. Um, for example, uh, converting outdoor lighting to, to LEDs, um, as an example, they also did well in the community wide section when it came to encouraging distributed energy resources, you know, community solar um, on site, that sort of thing. Um, but that's something that, you know, there are some cities or quite a few in the, the large city scorecard that that also do well. Um, so, you know, there wasn't something that like jumped off right off the bat in terms of advantages for smaller cities. But like, frankly, it's, it's not something that I did analysis for that if I really looked into the numbers, um, I'd be able to, to figure it out. So there might be something hiding there that I, I don't know about yet. 
Having seen all this, what's your view on climate action at this scale of city size? Is it is it important? Can it have an impact? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, like I said, I, I went into this not without many expectations um, and not really knowing what, what smaller cities had been doing. Um, and we found that smaller cities were doing quite a lot, um, you know, and a way to think about that, you know, I, I compared what the 30 smaller cities were doing to the larger cities in terms of uh, just the median score. So in the, the methodology that we used here aligns with the 2019 city scorecard. And I say that because the methodology always changes from year to year in the city scorecard. So, um, you know, I looked at the, the median score in the 2019 city scorecard and it was in the mid twenties um, for a city. And for the 30 cities in the community energy challenge, it wasn't that far behind. It was either in the high teens or the low twenties. Um, so, you know, it tells me that the, the smaller cities are, are pretty close in terms of level of ambition to, to larger cities. Um, so I think there, there's certainly, um, you know, an opportunity for cities to continue to do more, to continue to lead and to just root the benefits from, from climate action. Because I think it's not only about can cities take these actions that reduce greenhouse gas emissions? I think it's about can smaller cities take advantage of all of the benefits that come along with climate action um, from uh, just growing stronger, more prosperous, resilient communities. Um, and I think there's a bunch of ways to look at that. If you are increasing energy efficiency and renewable energy, you're improving your economy because you're creating jobs and you're keeping more money within your community that helps everyone, um, all businesses. You are helping to reduce energy burdens. Um, you're making your community healthier um, by increasing active transportation like biking and reducing pollutants. Um, so those are, those are benefits that regardless of what size your city is, um, they're important things to, to really take a hold of. So I think regardless of, of city size, you know, um, it, it matters. So small cities certainly can, can do this work and benefit from it. That what you're saying really resonates with me. So often in climate action work, the first thing you hear about is what it might cost, but the benefits that come from these investments that are being made in, in climate action in cities certainly is in terms of emissions reductions, but you're absolutely right. There's huge other benefits that you get in terms of quality of life, financial, um, and, and others, and just building community, right? With the, with the community that's easier to walk and bike and get around, it just changes the way people interact with each other. Yeah, absolutely. That's why, you know, increasingly, I, I think about climate action less in terms of, you know, tons of GHGs, you know, reduced to, to making more uh, prosperous, healthy communities. That's, that's what, that's what I think about. And that's where I think the opportunity lies. Um, Cause if it's that, if that's the approach you take and you get away from, you know, um, what's the most cost-effective uh, ton reduced or something like that, um, it just, it connects with people better and it just makes the argument um, a lot, uh, a lot more uh, valuable to, to folks. Well, thanks, Dave. This was great. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. We just spoke with Dave Ribeiro of ACEEE. What do you think about that, Larry? Really interesting. And especially the point that he made that smaller cities are pretty close to larger cities on actions and things that they're taking. 
we didn't get into too many details about what went into the analysis of the cities, but um, you know, he mentioned that transportation was taken out for smaller cities. So does that impact their score um, on the whole against larger cities or was that accounted for? Um, those are the kind of like nerdy things that you want to get into, but you got to save time. Yeah. And, you know, transportation is an interesting one because it, there is, I think there's a way of evaluating it for a smaller city, but maybe in a different way than for a larger city. Cause he's right. You won't have tend to won't have the same kind of transit control or discussion, but still you can do a lot in terms of uh, biking, walking, you know, non-auto infrastructure. Yeah, definitely. And I think as, as technologies change and we see electric bikes growing in popularity, um, there's more possibilities around that for smaller communities. Um, there's also opportunities potentially around autonomous vehicles for communities and those kind of, what if we have an in-town circulator and different uh, opportunities to explore, I think, for those those smaller communities. There's also, you know, there's smaller communities that are more regional economic centers that are that are isolated to themselves. And then there's smaller communities that are suburban communities and they are connected to that larger system. So true. I think there's a number of avenues you can explore there. I think what it does point out is that there is just a really rich set of examples of things that smaller cities are doing and that can have a real impact both on themselves and being an example for others. So I think that sets up some of the interviews we're going to be doing. Absolutely. And I like this point at the end about, you know, making this more about the benefits and the, the focus on the people who live in the communities rather than just thinking about what is the cost effectiveness of reducing a ton of carbon emissions. Absolutely. Well, we finished recording this episode and just before we published it, the energy crisis um, happened in Texas. It's another reason, another example of why we're doing this. We thought it'd be a good idea to comment on it. So Abby, what are your thoughts? Texas experienced the worst case scenario for uh, power outages and, and a situation that they weren't prepared for, for a number of reasons. Um, the biggest reason being, you know, Texas doesn't expect to get such cold temperatures, but as we are moving deeper into this climate crisis, those are the kinds of events that we have to prepare for is extreme weather events on both ends, whether it's, you know, extreme heat or storms that occur in the summertime or, extreme cold in places where it's not supposed to be cold. This situation, this crisis that happened um, down in Texas is a reminder of why we're doing this and why we need to continue to accelerate climate action, both mitigation and resilience um, at all levels, including cities, including all sizes of cities, not just the largest cities, because um, we need to be prepared for these kinds of events, and we need to do all that we can to minimize the impact that we'll see in the future. Yeah, you know, maybe five or 10 years ago, people or a city could say, well, I don't quite know how climate change is impacting me. But I think now that's not the case for pretty much anywhere, whether it's flooding or droughts or now 
Uh, I know there's uh, someone that refers to this as global weirding as opposed to global warming, mm-hmm. right? Where mm-hmm. just changes in in temperatures in the Arctic are just messing with normal weather patterns. So you get these, you know, 500 year floods, or maybe it's 100 year freezes, and that the infrastructure is just not prepared for. Absolutely. And the images just, you know, a reflection of what we've taken in in just the past, not even a year um, in this country alone. There's other um, major hazards happening all over the world, but people have posted images from California wildfires this summer to the Texas deep freeze um, and how people are coping with that. And, and we absorb that and we carry on and we move on to the next day because, you know, we are inherently resilient, but we can be much more resilient when we have those systems in place to support us. And I think that in all of these scenarios, we're also seeing the exposure of the inequities that exist in our systems and in our policies, and those who have the least impact bear the greatest brunt of many of these disasters and need to be front and center in developing solutions for this. Absolutely. One of the things that gave me hope over the course of past several months, and now I'm waiting to see what happens with it, is the fact that... Um, Candidate Biden made a part of his campaign that he was going to invest a substantial amount in clean energy and infrastructure to simultaneously strengthen our infrastructure, but also to get us down the path of of climate action. And 40% of that investment, he, he had planned $2 trillion over four years, was going to be targeted towards disadvantaged communities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that investment certainly needs to come with a healthy dose of inclusive engagement so that um, those decisions are me- being made with the people who are impacted and not for the people who are being impacted. So as good Midwesterners who were accustomed to winter, we're accustomed to these kind of temperatures, um, we have you in our thoughts and uh, we're hoping that you uh, are doing all right and that you build resilience and um, we can all work together toward a more sustainable future. We hope you enjoyed this episode of City Climate Corner. If you like what you're hearing, make sure to subscribe and give us a review. As always, you can find more information on this topic and resources from this episode's guests on our webpage. If you have an idea for the show, send us an email at cityclimatecorner at gmail.com. City Climate Corner is produced by Abby Finnis and me, Larry Kraft edited by me music by king gizzard and the lizard wizard thanks for listening and we'll see you next time